Welcome to Boiling Point. They're feared and they're admired. Great white sharks are the ultimate predators of the ocean. They make us realize that we are still part of nature and sometimes even part of the food chain, if unlucky. Our guest knows the ins and outs of great whites. He runs regular cage diving expeditions to help people get close and personal with his sometimes not so gentle giants and to help people understand sharks better. After all, sharks are essential for healthy and well-functioning marine ecosystems. Listen in to the story in just a moment. Welcome back to Boiling Point, the weekly science show on Eastside 89.7 FM. On the show, it's your hosts Kat and our show intern Dom. Good evening. Our guest today is Andrew Fox, the son of famous of the famous Australian spearfisher and shark bite victim Rodney Fox. Andrew has continued his father's company and vision. Andrew is a marine biologist and regularly out on his company's ship to show people the fascinating world of great white sharks. Welcome to the show, Andrew. Hello, Kat. Hi. Why and how did your father actually start the um, business of taking people cage diving? Well, you know, uh, the whole cage diving business came about as a result of him overcoming his fear after after his shark attack. He was a, a keen uh, adventurer of the water and um, he was a, a champion spear fisherman. Uh, that's how he got attacked at the time, spearfishing, and he wanted not to be afraid to go back into the ocean. So um, interestingly, the, the game fisherman with the world record for catching great white sharks at the time uh, Alf Dean uh, wrote to him in, in hospital and mentioned in a letter that he we should never go back into the water again because um, these monsters are horrible big things that will scare him and uh, you're best just to hang up your dive gear and, and give it up. However, uh, my father loved uh, the ocean and the adventure and um, in those pioneering days it was very special indeed and um, uh, he wanted to learn more about them so he actually built the first shark cage for seeing great white sharks and filming them and made the first film um, back in 1965 and actually accompanied Alf Dean out to to see these great white sharks face to face. Yeah, that is indeed very brave. I can't even imagine. I never had to face a, a live great white shark in the water without the cage. So that would have been definitely a very brave act to, to go back in there to lose that fear. So tell us, what's the mission of your father's and now your business? Yeah, well, since those very early days of, uh, of shark films and... Um, and they became more popular after the Jaws movie became out on uh, on the screen. People became interested in great white sharks, and we provided the only platform for film crews with researchers on board and uh, scientists and students and uh, journalists. And um, we found out that our platform was a fantastic uh, way for people to come out and learn about the sharks and to find the value of the great white sharks in our world um, so our mission has been since those very early days is to, uh, to to assist in the education and conservation and research of great white sharks which are sadly still largely misunderstood yeah and i have to point out here that your father rodney fox he was also his business was 
yeah, essentially involved in filming scenes or life shark fil- uh, scenes for um, the movie Jaws. I quite like that story, how uh, like South Australia is one of the best spots on the planet, right? To see them on a regular and reliably oh, basis. That's correct, yeah. In the uh, early days, back in the 60s and 70s, it was about the only place that was really known to be able to produce great white sharks for the camera. And um, uh, my father got hit up for a lots of interesting projects. He was sort of a little bit uh, sad to know that he, he made people scared of sharks by being involved in the, the live footage of Jaws. But uh, we like to think that, ironically, it's actually created a great awareness of great white sharks and inspired a whole generation of conservationists and researchers to want to learn more and be fascinated about great white sharks, which has ultimately led to their protection. Yeah, so, yeah, it sounds like it had a bit of an ambivalent effect, but I feel like the positive effects of, as you said, fascinating people and wanting them to learn more about the sharks has definitely um, survived or lived longer than than the fear, I hope, at least. And just one more quick comment, which I also found really cool about when I when I learned about how your father was involved in making the movie, that I think the Jaws, the, the original shark in the movies was in the movie was supposed to be eight minutes meters right and 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 the problem is you don't find sharks great whites of that size in nature so they had to you you correct me if i'm wrong but they actually used a tiny cage like a basically children's children's version of the cage and a really small actor to make the shark look twice the size that's correct yes Um, actually you know only less than a minute of live footage made it to the final cut uh, interestingly, that changed the whole uh, script of the film. They had to change the script from the original, from what they filmed, and uh, and Hooper lives out of all of that. But yes, the uh, the scale of the sharks that we normally see are around the, the three to four to five meter mark maximum. Uh, nothing like the big seven or eight meter sharks in in the movie with the Jaws model. So we had to scale down the, the cages, and that's actually had a, a child-sized actor uh, for one scale and even a, a little doll mannequin that was down to a, a third of the size of a person to really scale down the, the sharks if we only got the smaller three-metre sharks. <laughs> That's just hilarious. So what does that teach us? Again, never believe anything you see on movies. It's just all fake. <laughs> anyway, so um, Andrew... Tell us a bit more. You basically grew up with sharks and you must have dived with them a thousand times. What is it that still fascinates you about um, yeah, about the sharks? It's, um, yeah, it was an interesting life. I've spent nearly uh, over, over 40 years now um, continuously diving with great white sharks, yeah, many, many thousands of times. And I remember that my father told me right in the early days that don't ever buy a boat, number one, because boats are, uh, he said in the early days, it's like throwing $50 bills away. But uh, it's just like they throwing $1,000 bills away now owning a boat to uh, to go out and, and research them. And um, he said that we'd never be able to make a living out of seeing great white sharks because it's so controversial that... Um, that'll never happen for very long. But it seems like um, every year... I get uh, more enthused about uh, making a difference with 
inspiring people with seeing the great white shark, wanting to learn about him, and the research is still a lot to be done. Amazingly, we know so much about great white sharks. They're such a famous animal, but there's still so much to learn. That's a very good segue to um, a little segment of fun facts about sharks. So tell us, we talked about sizes. What is the what what is the usual size? How big do they usually get? Well, I, I don't like to downplay the the greatness of a great white shark, but it's, uh, it's pretty strange how nearly every fisherman from the west coast over here has seen sharks that are bigger than the boat and. Barry was up on the nose and George was on the tail. The tail was there the, uh, on the stern and the, and the nose was at the, 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 at the bow. So we know that it was seven or eight metres. But in the history of uh, verified measurements, there's actually never been a shark reliably measured over six metres long. And um, that seems to be the same maximum size of the giant mature females in, in many geographical places around the world. But um, even a shark anywhere over five metres is, a, is a, a big, rare, special thing. So the females usually get bigger than the males? Yes, the females need to be 15 or 20 years old or more to be about five metres long to even be sexually mature, to even have babies. And when you think they have uh, up to 10 or more young every maybe two or three years that are about 1.2 to 1.5 meters long you can imagine they need to be a, a big a big animal to accommodate that um, and, and just even the, the thickness of the skin needs to be able to handle the the love bites in the mating process which is quite a sensational uh, act it must be from the from the wounds we see from the mating process has that ever been observed well, that's actually one of the, the, the holy grails of, of what a lot of filmmakers want to see is actually the first time ever that uh, mating sharks have been observed. They, they've never really been filmed. Um, we've seen other species that have had horrific mating processes of, of sharks. And there's a couple of reports off of New Zealand which seem to suggest that we've seen um, two big sharks come together and spiral away uh, back into the depths or in the shallow bays they they get seen for extended periods and it, it does seem to match up with what we think is a mating act yeah interesting i've only ever watched um, two wobbegong sharks mating and already in them and they were like probably two meters each that really didn't look too pleasant so i saw i don't know if that's a usual thing but the male would bite into the female female's gills and then hold her on her back that way is that is that how it's yeah. imagined in great whites as well, in a way. Well, yeah, absolutely. Even with uh, yeah other pelagic species, which are a bit maybe closer to a great white, but uh, yeah, with a bite around the, the pectoral fin and the gills and around the back, and you can actually see the difference in the scars of the bites from a a mating grappling type bites, and with and of course great whites have these big sharp teeth. But you can see the difference between those and the other territorial bite marks that the great whites also get. But one one difference to the Wobbegong sharks who are 
able, very well, well able to stay on the bottom for longer times is that the great whites always have to be on the move, right? So they have to mate while they're swimming? Yes, so that's uh, the, the reports that we've got and uh, similar to other pelagic species that need to keep swimming is um, they, they sort of fall down into the depth or roll on the bottom and you can only imagine that it can't take too long before there's some sort of suffocation which might be a good way to interrupt them to take a breather actually. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it can't last for too long that's for sure um all right from this slightly sensitive topic to how old do great whites actually get that's actually uh the age of a great white is um has been reported from north northern Atlantic sharks over on the, the North American side. Um, technology has shown um, that in the vertebrae of these great white sharks that the age rings match up like the rings of a tree. And uh, especially if you can match up nuclear events which leave a, a nuclear isotope signature in the rings of these vertebrae, you can match them up and try to correlate the annual rings And they've amazingly reported uh, a male great white shark over 70 years old that was caught and analysed through the growth rings and, and a big giant female over 40 years old, which was a little bit surprising to me. But um, even more surprising is they found a Greenland shark with many centuries old just from that same technology. Oh, wow. Yeah, the Greenland sharks are those ones like the oldest creatures on the planet, basically. Is that right? That's right. The oldest vertebrates that we know about are the Greenland sharks and they move very slow in very cold water and um, time passes slowly for those guys. Yeah, they do look a bit like it. They do look like um, living fossils in a way. It's pretty crazy. Well, at least they're not really stressed. So I guess that's a benefit as well. <laughs> that's true. Although it would be interesting what mating looks like for them if they can manage that stress-free as well. I would be surprised. Yes. <laughs> Um, where do you actually find great whites in the wild? Yeah, um, well, even though great white sharks are quite well known as not the most common of sharks and, and they're actually endangered in, in, as, as vulnerable uh, on the um, ICUN red list, but um, surprisingly, they're uh, probably equal to blue sharks or even surpassing blue sharks. They're probably the most widespread great uh, shark species in the world, um, extending into most of the temperate waters and um, even subtropical and even extending into the subantarctic and subarctic waters. So um, they're found just about everywhere in the world. Um, there's a few big strongholds, um, including off southern Australia, which has... Um, two uh, populations with the western population west of Tasmania looking genetically distinct to the eastern population and um, there's a uh, substantial populations off of uh, northeast and northwest North America um, there's even uh, populations through Asia right up into the northern Pacific um, and uh, there's other little populations such as the Mediterranean which really interestingly look to have a genetic signature close to the Australian sharks more so than the Atlantic or the South African sharks, which, which, is, which is another strong population. 
Yeah, interesting. So you're basically saying that although in terms of geographic distance, the South Australian sharks and the Tasmanian ones, they don't mate? They don't want to have anything to do with each other? Well, that's right. Uh, they, it looks as though they're genetically distinct, each side of Tasmania, each side of Bass Strait. So even though we know that Western Australian or Southern Western sharks do travel east, even to even to New Zealand and they're up to Queensland, and the Eastern Australian sharks also go west, it looks as though they, they maintain that genetic diversity by returning to their original birthing ground and mating and, and pupping within their, their home range. Interesting. That's a bit narrow-minded of them, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, well, actually, it's reflected also in the Australian salmon population and a lot of other um, invertebrate and, and marine creatures. It looks like the uh, the land bridge from Tasmania only broke away about 14,000 years or so, and it uh, allowed a lot of animals to shoot through there rather than going down underneath. And it's surprising that um, there's... there's different populations each side of Tasmania yeah yeah I think we've heard the giant cuttlefish that come into Spencer Gulf it's the same they're, they're distinct from um, the East Australian ones well the same species but different population um, on a genetic level yeah different genetically yeah there's finding out a lot of things in genetic analysis of species it's a very powerful tool and uh, when we talk about shark, different shark personalities, so you have dived with so many different sharks. Would you would you say that they have different personalities? Yes, looking at the different uh, personalities and and features of a, of a great white, I, I like to pick up tiny differences, and that's one of the things that's kept me very interested in going out year after year and getting a database on profiling each shark. And it is amazing that you actually do get to pick their personalities um, and um, you try hard not to put human tendencies onto them, but <laughs> you can uh, even tell a type which shark it is by the way they move and um, behave around you. So can you can you give us an example? Like what are the different types, like the more shy, the shyer sharks and the more straightforward or more aggressive ones? So what differences did you did you see? Exactly. Yeah, well, I knew one of my favourite big sharks um, years ago was Tinker. And she seemed to be nervous and hang off in the distance a lot. And then she'd come charging through at great speed and um, occasionally um, jump out of the water or surprise us or, um, or, or do a big splash everybody on the boat. And um, she seemed to be a bit agitated, a bit nervous, um, Whereas we've got other sharks which have uh, a real calmness about them, but they've got a boldness um, which allows them to come and just spy hop with their eye above the water and um, and nudge the cages around and push things around. And it's hard to know what's the most dangerous or the most aggressive out of those two types of uh, differences. But... Um, Oh, you, 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 once you see, it's like anybody that looks at two German Shepherds or two Labrador dogs, they sort of look the same and act the same in a way. But once you get to know your dog, you know that it's a completely different animal with a different personality. I'm sure the sh the sharks or the dogs would say the same about us at first, right? Oh, they look exactly the same, but then they behave so different, weird. 
Um, I guess we we can't get around about uh, talking about sharks attacking or great white shark attacks. And there was a recent very sad and unfortunate um, lethal shark attack in, in um, Sydney. So it's quite fresh on everyone's minds. Um, what is your personal and scientific opinion on how or why um, do great whites attack people? Sure. Um, you know, I actually it around when people ask me that question I'm actually a little bit surprised that they don't attack and eat us more often than they do because we're, when we're in the water we're a marine mammal the same size and shape as a lot of their other natural food sources like sea lions and dolphins and um, they are known to eat big rays and other big fish so we're no different so Often we're uh, rejected as a prey item after we're sampled, but uh, um, a lot of the time we get rejected. And uh, yeah, and um, but yeah, as, as happened in this unfortunate episode recently, occasionally great white sharks do eat and consume us, and that can only be seen in my eyes as, as nearly a natural thing for an animal that uh, is built the way it is and has evolved to, to eat things outside. So it's basically, oh, when you say um, they first, yeah, try us, so that means they would do like a little bite and see what it tastes like? Sure. It's uh, the original attack and the whole pr ongoing procedure right through to even eating us is a whole series of steps of motivation. And um, depending on the motivation of the shark and the situation and the triggers, um, the shark can continue to keep going um, Most of the time, it will not even engage us at all. But uh, one of the first triggers of motivation is uh, a touch, touch test where they, they use their teeth, which are incredibly uh, sophisticated with more nerves than our human finger um, tips uh, as far as sensory. And uh, they can tell the, the softness and then they've got taste receptors. And if it looks like we haven't got the right brown fatty tissue that a lot of marine mammals have they weigh up whether or not in in a sort of subconscious way whether it's worth ingesting us and uh the the effort reward with the the space and the energy is worth worth keep going with um apart from the the motivation to feed though a lot of attacks may also be related to territorial behavior and that may even be in the case with my father's attack where He was carrying a fish behind on a, on a, on a rope while he was spearfishing. And um, we know that sharks bite each other for, for a territorial uh, competition for space and resources. And uh, he might have been saying, clear out of my area. This is my turf. This is what I'm going to eat. But, um, yeah, often it's a, a hunger thing as well. And in Australia in particular, there has been many cases now where, unfortunately, the the The, the attack victim is actually eaten and disappeared. So basically you're saying it is an option that the shark or that your father had been a too successful spear fisherman, that the shark was like, no, I can't. I can't have this guy in my neighborhood that is just taking away way too much prey. Absolutely. And um, <laughs> he had ended up taking the fish off of on his rope and, and after his dad was recovering, uh, trying to get a breath of air back, 
at the surface, even with his lung punctured, the shark pulled him down with his with the rope that was trailing behind him down to the bottom again, and he had to fight to get back to the surface. But luckily, the uh, the rope uh, cut through. So um, it's I know that my dad was extremely fit as a freediver, and um, he was a very bony person. So I'm sure the shark, after a big bite of a bony uh, spear fisherman, would have. Uh, Bat him out and uh, thought it's not worth the effort. I'll go for this this smelly fish, which is more what I've evolved with, and and um, it was bleeding and probably more on on its menu. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like I really wish we were able to look into the the sharks' minds and really see what's going on there. But that sounds like a pretty accurate assumption, I guess. So, um, that's what we're aiming for there. Let's talk a bit about your foundation. So you have a you have a business taking people out to see the sharks, but you also have a foundation um, giving money to researchers who want to learn and study the great white sharks. Do you want to tell us a bit about a few examples? Like um, usually take the researchers out on on your vessel, and um, then they have the um, the option to to do research. So what kind of um, studies have been done on your on your boat? Sure. Well. Right from the beginning, um, it's, our uh, expeditions have been about the only real uh, regular and reliable platform for studying such an elusive animal. And most of the films we started off with always like to include researchers or a scientist in the storyline. And it was a fantastic opportunity to get out, work with these elusive animals and get some um, really well-needed research on them for the conservation. Um, so it's a, our tourism still provides the platform for so many uh, students and research studies um, from anything from different tagging and tracking studies and biopsy genetic studies from and even looking at the uh, through the, the fatty acid analysis of the, of the tissues, what the sharks are eating. And um, we can uh, look at behavioural studies with, with different apparatuses for measuring the energy of the sharks. I'm not personally a big fan of invasive technology, but if we can put temporary clamps on fins or temporary tags on the sharks without interfering too much with them, we can learn a lot about their natural behaviour. Um, and another really important thing to do is know that we're not actually having an impact on the sharks just with the cage diving element. So most of the uh, research that we do get involved with can be related directly back to the impact that we're having on the sharks themselves at the Neptune Islands. That's actually, that's a really good point I, I want to ask about. So you have a license to bait the sharks. You don't feed them, but you bait them. So so you're saying, you mentioned this just now so you're saying it does not change the behavior of the sharks when you um, yeah when you do the expeditions and bait them yes um, well any any sort any uh, interference with any natural environment will cause um, a change in behavior as such but uh, we're actually amazed to see that white sharks don't seem to become dependent on us as a food source largely because we We deny them from feeding at every chance we get. Um, and they continue to go into natural behaviors soon after we stop um, diving with them or baiting them with um, a fish-based product that um, gets their attraction. Otherwise, 
we would not even see them at all. So um, a lot of uh, controversy has been about making the sharks more dangerous. And again, we, we're keen to know that that's not the case. And um, there's no link to any suggestions of that, but there is actually really good uh, quantitative data that shows that sharks become negatively habituated to us. Um, and after exposure to us, they, uh, they show a diminishing uh, a return of anything associated with um, getting positively conditioned to us. So they, their uh, swimming speed, their number of approaches, their, um, we know they're still in the area, but they don't even choose to get seen after a while. And that's a general trend over the period of their residencies, which are up to a week or two sometimes only a day or two, and even on successive returns over over multiple years. So it does look like um, the sharks have a natural life and uh, they quickly go back to doing anything they can when um, we turn off uh, the uh, stimulus to come and say hello to us just for a, a short time. In, that's very interesting. So you're basically saying, in a way, you are boring them to death so they don't want to come close to us anymore. So it's like people in a cage, that must be super boring to look at them for too long because nothing is happening, right? Can't eat it. Yeah. It doesn't taste like anything. Yeah. Well, yeah, well, there's no reason for them to be interested in us. I mean, there's a, a shape like a, maybe a dead floating whale and there's an interesting electromagnetic field and there's vibrations. But unless there's a, a, some sort of reward, there's no point in the shark um, being interested for very long. It's, um, it's a bit of an insult to their sophisticated senses. They're incredible at, at hearing and smelling and their visual is, is fantastic as well. But um, to, to put the, the scent in the water also is uh, like ringing a, a dinner bell and... Um, they, if they're not rewarded to the intensity of the stimulus, it leads to classic uh, negative habituation and um, they'll, they'll go away. Yeah, that makes sense for sure. So we soon have to wrap up, unfortunately, but I do have one more quick question for you. What about the current conservation status of the great whites? How are they doing in Australia and in general? Um, it was it was wonderful to get some benchmark population figures off of the populations, the, the two um, populations of Australia, the eastern and the southern western population. We've now uh, sort of got close to working out that we've got about 750 to 1,000 uh, adults off the eastern coast of Australia and perhaps twice that many in the southern western zone. Still need to work out with a little bit of clever math, how many uh, juveniles and sab adults that might also represent. But um, we need to know exactly how many young they have, how often and um, how many of those young in particular survive year to year after they're born at 1.2 to 1.5 metres long to, to finish that. But so if we get uh, a study... Um, that we've worked out through the genetics of the sharks by sampling the genetics of the sharks. We can look for common mums and common dads, uh, just like you can with genetically uh, analysing our own DNA. We can look for our ancestry. And that's really helped us to get a benchmark and um, that makes us, lets us have make decisions on um, well, how many are getting caught accidentally in the fishing nets 
And we know that a lot get caught accidentally and that they're very slow breeding. Um, so that's listed as vulnerable. And um, it looks as though there's other shark species now that are, um, are up as, as endangered and critically endangered. So it's very important to know the conservation status of the sharks just to make sure that we can keep them going to do the job that they're supposed to be doing out there. Yeah, for sure. So that sounds like a bit of a positive outlook. So the sharks around Australia are doing, the great whites are doing not too badly, is that right? They're not, uh, so it seems like we're holding. Uh, we're a bit more worried about the Mediterranean population, um, but it does look like the, the northern Atlantic, uh, the northern uh, western Atlantic population seem to be doing well with the big recovery of uh, the seal population there. And even off Australia, we've got a big fur seal and um, uh, humpback whale population increase, which will probably be helping the white shark population there. And they'll need the white sharks to keep them in check. That sounds really good. It's always nice to end on a positive note, right? Especially in dark times like these. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> thanks so much, Andrew. We have to wrap up here, unfortunately. But thanks so much for being our guest on the show tonight. You're very welcome. My pleasure. Thanks so much for listening to Boiling Point, the weekly science show on Eastside 89.7 FM. We will be back with a new science story next week. But before we finish up, we have a song for you, which was handpicked by Andrew. The song is called Run by Snow Patrol. Bye for now.